So with that all said, uh, I would like to invite you all to um, stand for the reading of God's word. We'll jump right into scripture here. I'm going to read from Judges 13. Excuse me, I'm going to read from Hebrews 11 and then I'm going to... Hebrews 11, and then we'll jump back to Judges 13. And since my, one second here, let me read it from the screen, because I brought the NIV and I want to read from the NLT. So, Hebrews 11, 1 through 3 says, Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in the days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. And then we'll drop down to 31 or 32, excuse me. It says, How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in the battle and put whole armies to flight. And then if you go to Judges 13... Excuse me, Judges 14. We'll come to 13 in a minute. Judges 14, verse 1, it says, One day, when Samson was in Tinmo, one of the Philistines' women caught his eye. And when he returned home, he told his father and mother, A young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye, and I want to marry her. Get her for me. His father and mother objected. Isn't there even one woman in our tribe or among all Israelites you can marry? They asked, why must you go to the pagan Philistines to find a wife? But Samson told his father, get her for me. She looks good to me. His father and mother didn't realize that the Lord was at work in in this, creating an opportunity to work against the Philistines who ruled over Israel at that time. As Samson and his parents were going down to Timnah, a young lion suddenly attacked Samson near the vineyards of Timnah. At that moment, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, and he ripped the lion's jaws apart with his bare hands. He did it as easy as if it were a young goat, but he didn't tell his father or mother about it. When Samson arrived in Timnah, he talked with the woman and was very pleased with her. Later, when he returned to Timnah for the wedding, he turned off the path to look at the carcass of the lion, and he found that a swarm of bees had made some honey in the carcass. He scooped some of the honey into his hands and ate it along the way. He also gave some to his father and mother, and they ate it. But he didn't tell them he had taken the honey from the carcass of a lion. As his father was making final arrangements for the marriage, Samson threw a party at Timnah. As was the custom for it 
elite young men. When the bride's parents saw him, they selected 30 young men from the town to be his companions. Samson said to them, let me tell you a riddle. If you solve my riddle during these seven days of the celebration, I will give you 30 fine linen robes and 30 sets of festival clothing. But if you can't solve it, then you must give me 30 fine linen robes and 30 sets of festival clothing. All right, they agreed. Let's hear your riddle. So he said, out of the one who eats came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Three days later, they were still trying to figure it out. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time that we have together and thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your spirit that illuminates the scripture for our understanding, Lord. And Lord, we are just so thankful for who you are and what you're doing and and even to hear um, just updates from the school ends and how you're at work um, in so many places, Lord. And it's not by chance or ironic that uh, they were studying Hebrews 11 at the same time we are. So, Lord, we just thank you for the way that you work in our lives, Lord, and thank you for bringing us here. So now, again, Lord, prepare our hearts to receive your word, Lord. I pray that you use me however you see fit. Whatever you want me to say, I say. Whatever you don't, I don't. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. So as we continue in this series, Good, Bad, and Ugly, if you've been with us, then uh, you've been following along and we're taking a look at each character in Hebrews 11 as they are mentioned or as it is inferred to. And uh, we're in week 15 of considering this, and some of them, like Samson, uh, will take us two weeks, and granted, we probably could spend a, a whole month plus um, looking at his life. And, and as we're considering Hebrews 11, we are now in a section where I think, personally, it is difficult to explain a clear-cut reason why the person in Hebrews 11 is mentioned. Last week at the baptism service at Paulette's house, we talked about Barack, and he's mentioned three times, and it really looked like he was not as faithful as Deborah, but yet he was in there. And now we introduce Samson, and what a guy. Um, what, I, what my challenge for you this morning, if, if you know this story, specifically if the last time you read this story was when you were a kid or you taught Sunday school or you were in Sunday school, is to forget about it. Because as I was going through this week the, the explanation in different children's curriculum, I found that Samson at least according to the cleanup version, the G version, maybe the PG version, is he's this big, huge, monstrous man who fights a lion. Then it fast forward, he's blind, he's faithful, he knocks down the building, and God's people win. Yay. But as we go through this, as we're reading through this, and, 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 and I kept jumping back to Judges 13 and 14. I didn't read 13 yet, but just considering it, he made so many mistakes. And I think that's part of human nature. That's our sinful nature. But I also think that's part of our journey and our faith is taking a look at our mistakes and being honest with them, taking a look at our sins. 
See, when we first began this series, there were several of you, and I won't make direct eye contact with you, but several of you mentioned right at the beginning, right after the first service, what in the world are you going to do with Samson? And if you remember my reply was, I don't know until I get there. But as we think about him, it's important to remember where the series really began and and what that hope of the series was. And I think part of the hope that Hebrews 11 is about is that it's good, it's bad, it's ugly. God is always good. And our faith sometimes is ugly. Sometimes it's bad. Sometimes bad things happen to us. Many times we do ugly things to ourselves and to others. And if you're sitting here this morning and you know the story of Samson, and even though I asked you to forget about the story of Samson, you're still thinking about it and shaking your head, and, and perhaps you're thinking to yourself, which I did spend quite a bit this week thinking, man, this guy just, he had so much potential. Even this week, again, as I was discussing Samson with someone, um, another pastor regarding Samson, because I always try to steal from other people. Um, he, he, he mentioned, he said, talk about someone who had all the gifts, ability, and strength, and so much potential, yet God used him despite the fact that it was unmet potential. And I think that's just it. I think the last several weeks, what I've been saying is that our faith is a journey. I do believe that. And it's not perfect faith. And you probably would all shake your heads And although we recognize that Christ is perfect than he is, I think deep down inside, we want our heroes to be perfect or near perfect. Or if they have a tragic flaw, it's one that's immediately overcome. Now, if you have a hero opposite of my hero, then I want to poke at your hero. If if your star of your baseball team does something dumb, I'll make sure that to let you know he struck out three times last night. Because he did. But I won't tell you. But, it, but there's this expectation, I think. I think that in some ways we expect that of each other. Sometimes we hold this ideal of faith. But yet we know we can't live to it. So there's this irrational but very rational argument in us about desiring to be holy. We sung about both of our songs. It was about being holy. God is holy. We desire to be holy. We know that we won't be perfect, yet we desire. And it's this weird combination, and that's really what I appreciate the life of Samson, is we are looking at a man who is completely flawed, and yet, in some way, at the very last moment of his life, there's a glimmer of humility, and we'll cover it next week, His prayer is very selfish with a hint of Jesus in it. Essentially, what what we see in Samson in a phrase is, he is a man of faith, but he was not a faithful man. A man of faith, but not a faithful man. A man who knew and believed and trusted God some of the time, but mostly was not faithful. Most of what Samson did was he looked out for number one himself, And basically had road rage every time something didn't go as he had hoped. And really, one of the things I hope to point out is he was someone who had all of the gifts, strengths, ability that God could give someone and yet did not use them for God's glory. And the other part, if you're keeping track, is he was someone who skated right on that line of sin his whole life. 
right where he's not really doing something wrong until he does something wrong, but he puts himself in that situation and he skates that line and he crosses over and he's not too quick to come back over. I would imagine that if this was a modern day story, one of the things that would come up repeatedly would be a comment or a statement from him or for, from his observers is don't be legalistic. Come on, a Nazarite vow? Does God really want you to do that? The whole, it's the spirit of the law, don't follow it to the letter of the law, like all of these arguments that we can make. Well, what about grace? You know, perhaps in your own life, depending on what kind of background you grew up in, um, you went all the way legalistic or you went so far to grace and hopefully somewhere in the middle you're, you're hoping to be faithful. But at, at the heart of it, I believe the greatest enemy to Samson was Samson. His greatest hang-up was himself. I know that is true of myself. The one who gets me in the most trouble is me. I grew up in a neighborhood in North Long Beach where superstition was rampant. There was a lot of faiths and lots of different belief systems. And, there were, and quite often, many pe- people bl- blame the devil. The devil made me do it. Spirits made me do it. This made me do it. My brother made me do it. If he didn't look at me that way, I wouldn't have punched him. It's always someone else's fault. And perhaps some of you did not grow up in that kind of background. I don't know anyone here who's grown up in North Long Beach. I don't go North Long Beach, but... Um, If that means nothing to you, think of Compton and Watts. That's where I grew up. But all that to say, I believe, again, the greatest enemy to Samson was Samson. And perhaps the greatest enemy to yourself is yourself, especially those who are believers in Christ. Strengths, gifts, and abilities become the source of his own identity. It becomes the source of our own identity. And what we're going to see is we're going to see just quickly his life. Just the beginning of his life, we'll go back and see the, what God had promised to his mom and dad and the life of Samson and the rule that he had for 40 years. See, Jewish commentaries point out that Samson is a representation of how Israel rebelled against God. They were the chosen people, just like Samson was the chosen man. Israel had everything that they needed to be successful, so did Samson. It went to their head, so did Samson. They threw it away, so did Samson. And really, I would suggest that that can be the Christian life of how blessed we are to be walking in the Spirit, and yet we could throw that away quickly. My hope is taking the next two Sundays for Samson, and again, although we could wrestle with it for much longer, and look at his life and see how God is constantly good and and can constantly use the mess-ups and hang-ups Although that is not his desire, that's not his plan, yet Samson chose on his own to live his own life. So with that, just quickly, if you turn back to Judges 13, which is not what we read, even though I kept saying it, Judges 13, I just want to point out just the first five verses just to get us where we're at in Judges 13. So quickly, Judges 13 reads 1 through 5. It says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines who oppressed them for 40 years. Stop right there. Because the next verse just talks about how God calls him. 
What's interesting here is if we were to read all through Judges, and although we haven't, and we haven't done a study of Judges, but in the people that we've seen, Gideon and Barak with Deborah, what we've seen is usually, most often, Judges would read, again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord handed them over to fill in the bad guy of the time, who oppressed them for a certain amount of number of years. And in verse 2, almost always, except for here, says... And then the Israelites cried out to the Lord. We're so sorry, Lord. We can't handle this. You notice here, right up front, Israelites do not cry out to the Lord at all. The assumption here, and I would agree with it with commentaries, and the commentators, as they had mentioned throughout, starting with the Jewish commentaries, suggests that the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. And once the Philistines took over, the Philistines let them do whatever they wanted. They weren't like all of the ones that we've read so far with Gideon, how they came in and took all of their money. You remember the story of Gideon a couple of weeks ago when he's hiding in the wine press, sheathing the wheat, so that way the Amorites wouldn't come and take it. They would pillage and take everything. They really oppressed them. The Philistines, essentially, their way of government is, hey, do whatever you want, just pay us taxes. A couple other rules, don't tell us that we're sinners. We're going to live very sexually charged, awful lives. If you want to join, that's cool, but just leave us alone. You do you, basically, is what the Philistines said, as long as we can do us. Sound like the world, right? We're living in a time now, I would suggest that, yes, there's oppression. Make no marks about it. But, hey, you do you. You do what you want to do. So it it suggested, and I would agree, that the Israelites were like, well, this isn't as bad as it's been. I mean, we can still worship God if we want to. And we can party hard with them too. It'll be great. So with that, that mind, so the Lord still is interceding on our behalf, just like he still intercedes on our behalf. So in verse 2, quickly, from Judges 13, in those days... A man named Manoah from the tribe of Dan lived in a town of Zorah. His wife was unable to become pregnant and they had no children. We don't know his mom's name. He's just the wife. We'll call her Mrs. Manoah. And uh, she had no children. This is a, a theme. You'll see this all throughout the Bible. They have children. They don't even ask for children at this point. The angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah's wife and said, Even though you have been unable to have children, you will soon become pregnant and give birth to a son. Side note, it's the same exact phrasing as what was told to Abraham and Sarah, what was told to Mary later on in the New Testament. And in verse 4, So be careful, you must not drink wine or any other alcoholic drink, nor eat any forbidden food. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and his hair must never be cut, for he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. He will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. Just note real quick, and we'll talk about what a Nazarite vow is. Notice that that last part of verse 5, it says, he will begin to rescue Israel for the Philistines. This is God unfolding his plan of rescuing not only Israel, but he is beginning to lead the way to point to Christ that will come. This is just part of the rescue story. 
And again, it's, it's why the Israelites are, are comfortable. He's going to come and rescue them. And again, the Philistines don't care what you do. Do whatever you want as long as you pay your taxes. And uh, just for the rest of the story, Samson's mom runs and tells her husband, Manoah, that the angel of the Lord came and told her that she was going to have a baby and that she and he shall be under a Nazarite vow. So what is a Nazarite vow, you might be asking? Uh, you can read it in number 6, 1 through 21. We, we won't turn there and read it. That's your homework if you want homework to read it to make sure I'm not lying. But essentially, the Nazarite vow was a voluntary vow of separation unto God. It's a dedication, a separation unto God. Men or women can make it. And the Nazarite vow is normally a temporary vow, one made for a period of time. The Mishnah, which is the oral translation of the law that was passed down, says that people usually take a vow for 30, 60, 90, 100 days. And at the end of the vow, they cut their hair to show that the vow is over. Um, and then the vow specifically says uh, you have to abstain from wine and not just wine. You can't even touch the grape or the grapevines. You can't even touch the skin, no grape juice, no seeds, no raisins, no nothing. Just in case it ferments, no alcohol. And if at any time someone messes up this vow, they have to start all over, cut their hair, day one. And the person making a Nazarite vow must abstain from cutting their hair and from touching dead bodies. It, it talks about specifically saying if your mother or father or brother or sister are dead, you don't have to go to the funeral. You should not go to the funeral. Nothing with dead bodies. And at the, again, at the end of the vow, they would cut their hair to show that the vow was over. And it was typically not a lifetime vow at all. We read in the New Testament that Paul took a Nazarite vow. He cut his hair. It was very ceremonial. John the Baptist appears to have taken a lifetime vow. Jesus, of course, but Jesus is Jesus. But a vow was specifically, for this time, I'm going to dedicate it. Although, as Christians, we don't take a Nazarite vow. At least, I don't know any Christian who has. But we do things such as, you know, I'm not going to eat chocolate for however many days. I'm not going to watch TV. I'm not going to. I'm going to not eat food. That would be the equivalent. Because what is the hope for that? It's to take that time when your belly is grumbling to spend extra time with the Lord. You are, you are saying, I'm getting rid of everything that is offered of the world. And I'm totally dedicating it to you. So, perhaps the question that you have, because I had. Why does God want Samson to take a Nazarite vow? Why does God want that from him? I think that it would be necessary for him not to eat the unclean foods that the, uh, the, that the Philistines would offer. I believe because Israel is in such a, a time where they're so sucked into idolatry of the Israelites that it needed to be a clear-cut, identifiable, I'm going to take a difference. I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to stand apart from what's happening. Because essentially for the Philistines, drinking and eating was an essential part of pagan worship. I was looking into the different ways that the Philistines had to worship, and I had to be careful because it's very rated X. It's very gruesome. I don't recommend it. I know I shouldn't say I recommend it because everyone's jumping on their phone to look now. But I don't recommend it. It's very gross. It, it, it's, it's just heathen. 
all the way through. But a big part of it was everything was a drinking it was involved with drinking because it would mess their minds up and then they felt that that was the way that the spirits or the gods would speak to them in their drunken state. So Samson would have to be set apart. And then growing out your hair, why grow out your hair? It's because you're identifying that you're doing something different. So what God is doing is he, he's having him take a Nazarite vow to be apart, set apart for God to already show outwardly the change that's supposed to take. So Manoah prays. If you continue on, Manoah prays. We won't read all of it. He's a little jealous that the, the angel of the Lord speaks to his wife and not him. So he says, what about me? Talk to me too, please. So the angel of the Lord is very gracious, but shows up to his wife again. It's classic. And then she says, hold on. My husband wants to talk to you. So he runs over and, uh, and picks up in Judges 13, 11. He says, why do you go to my wife again? What's wrong with me? He doesn't say that. Uh, Manoah runs back with his wife and asks this in verse 11. Are you the man who spoke to my wife the other day? And the angel of the Lord says, yes, he replied, I am. Now, that I am statement should be familiar to us. The I am statement is the same statement that God made to Moses while in the burning bush when Moses was all scared and worried and saying, what, what if people don't believe me? Who should I say sent me? Say, I am who I am. It's the same exact I am statement. So this is a confirmed Christophany, which is Jesus Christ showing up before his earthly ministry. We see this uh, again and again, this I am statement all throughout John's gospel. He, he really focuses on the seven times that Jesus makes the I am statements. That's what really got him in the most trouble, I think, is whenever he said, I am God. He said that, if you remember, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the true vine. The same word. And so then at that point, Manoah just about dies. He's like, oh, oh, let me go. And exactly what Gideon says. Let me go and bring you a burnt offering. He says, I don't need a burnt offering, but bring it to me. And he goes up in this fiery pillar. You can read the whole thing for himself. And as soon as the angel of the Lord leaves and teleports on a fire slide or whatever you want to call it, he looks to his wife and says, we saw God. We should, he's going to kill us. And then she says, dum-dum? Like, if he was going to kill us, why would he say we we're going to have a child? Oh, yeah. So men, listen to your wives, all right? He goes, oh, good point. That's right. All right, now we're going to have a child. And, and this is how Judges 13, verse 25 ends. It ends this chapter, and it says, And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him while he lived in Menandran, which is located between the towns of Zorah and Estol. The Spirit of the Lord began to stir in Samson. God is already doing a work in Samson. And then when we go to Judges 14, 20-ish years pass. I don't know what happens but in between. Samson grows up. Uh, the story of Hercules is the story of Samson. 20 years later, and that's where we pick up. And uh, enter Samson. So this man of God who has taken this Nazarite vow, a voluntary vow, for a lifetime, 
He's now going to be the savior of the world. And and quickly, let's look at Judges 14. It says, one day when Samson was in Timnah, one of the Philistines' women caught his eye. When he returned home, he told his father and mother, a young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye. I want to marry her. Get her for me. And you're going to rescue us from the Philistines by marrying one of them. Those are the first words that he has said, that he states. I like her, get her, me. I mean, that's basically what he's saying. And then you might be asking yourself, why would he go and ask his father and mother to go get him a Philistine woman? Remember, this is an Eastern culture. The culture is no man or woman, specifically man, can go and ask someone to marry them. It's all arranged marriages, even between different tribes, even between different nations, Because the father and mother would have to pay a bride price. Essentially, what a bride price is, is alimony up front. I don't know how else to explain it. The the father and mother would pay the father, the father and mother of the boy would pay the father of the wife wife to be this money, uh, agreed upon money in anticipation that if he leaves, if they separate, if they get divorced, if he dies, alimony is already up front. Essentially, they're paying, don't worry, we're taking care of your daughter. Now, arranged marriages, that was the Eastern culture, that's what, he, that's what he wanted. So go get me her. Verse 3 says, his father and mother objected, of course, because they remember the promise that they made of a Nazarite. How can you separate if you're going to marry one of them. Isn't this even one woman in our tribe among you, all the Israelites, you can marry, they ask? Why must you go and get a pagan Philistine to find a wife? Very specific. They know, they reminded, they're telling Samson, why do you need a pagan woman? You're supposed to rescue us from them. But Samson told his father, get her for me, she looks good to me. That, that's what it says in Hebrew. I just read it to you. <laughs> Get her for me. She looks good to me. As you can see, Samson's appetite is very much a Philistine pagan. It's all about looks. Some people suggest that this woman in particular was a prostitute. Maybe so. He's not even thinking about the commitment that he made to God. All he wants is what he wants. So the parents are holding up what they said they would do to keep this Nazarite vow, but yet the strong man was weak. He is so focused on the desire, he's acting just like the Philistine, or to modernize it, he's acting just like the world. There would be no distinguishable differences between him and the world. Which, if it's not obvious of the point, is... I do consider this a lot. Do I look different to the outside world? Would people know that I'm a Christian without me saying that I'm a Christian? Am I a follower of Christ when people are looking and when people are not looking? But here's the key, though. Here's the good that we see in the Lord. In verse 4, it shows how God is being faithful despite the sin. Verse 4 says, His father and mother did not realize the Lord was at work in this creating an opportunity to work against the Philistines who ruled over Israel at the time. To be clear, this does not mean the Lord was saying, yay, go and sin. No, it's 
It's, this is where I believe sovereign, the sovereignty of God and the free choice of man come and collide. So when Samson goes to marry this woman, God isn't in heaven thinking, huh, I didn't see that coming. And yet, the God of heaven is also not saying, yes, go ahead and sin for my glory. As the rest of the chapter will show us, some good ultimately comes out of this ungodly marriage. Many Philistines are going to be killed, we'll see, and they keep it, they get kept off balance in the attempts to dominate the Israelites more and more. And however, none of that justifies Samson's action, and though God can make even the evil of man to serve his purpose, it never justifies the evil that man does. And no matter how much good God can bring out of and even the bad things that we do, I like what J.I. Packer said. He said, he can always bring far more good out of our obedience, and we ourselves experience much less pain. God used Samson's own self-interest and desires to entice his anger against the Philistines and to bring about deliverance of Israel from his oppression. And sometimes, God uses evil men to accomplish his good purpose. Have you, and if you don't believe this, and has, has someone who doesn't believe in Christ, who's totally rejected Christ, said something to you that God used? I hope so. I hope you're listening enough to hear God speak even through the unjust, through the evil. And Proverbs says that the rain rains on both good and evil men. So this is where God is interceding. It's just like going back to Joseph, when Joseph at the very end, his classic line, you meant this for evil, but God used it for good. Again, hold on to what J.R. Packer says. He can always bring far more good out of our obedience, and we ourselves experience much less pain. So in verse 5, Samson and his parents go down to Timnah. A young lion suddenly attacks Samson near the vineyards of Timnah. Stop there. Near the vineyards. What was one of the things he wasn't supposed to do? Touch the grapes. What are you doing in the vineyards? I really think that Samson is very aware that he's not supposed to be the vineyard in the vineyards, not close to be the grapes, but it's like the whole kid who comes right there. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. I'm right here. I'm almost going to sin, but I'm not going to sin. Because look at how strong I am. I don't need help. You know, I, that line is right there, but that line is very gray. And let me, you know, hey, but I still, I'm over here. So he's in the vineyards, and a lion attacks him. Verse 6, and at that moment, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, and he ripped the lion's jaws apart with his bare hands. That's wild. And since I'm a bit of a nerd, I did look up the, the force in which a lion can bite down. It's ridiculous. Like, I don't know why I looked it up, but I do. I'm weird. But he ripped it apart just, and it says, just as easily as if it were a young goat. Oh, okay, because I rip young goats apart all the time. So I know how that works. But here's the thing. He did not tell his father and mother about it. Why? Because he was in the vineyard. This great feat happened to him. Oh, quick note, real quick. In verse 6, it says, The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. 
most Jewish commentators and even modern commentators believe that Samson wasn't this big, huge Arnold Schwarzenegger-looking buff guy. He was just a regular-looking dude who all of a sudden got strong. Which it makes sense. I mean, although VeggieTales and everything else that I've learned about Samson, he's like this big, huge, ripped guy with like a 30-pack. So it, it would make sense. And I think, as I was considering this more, if he looked super buff, then people say, you're strong because you work out. But I, I do believe that, that that is true. The Spirit of the Lord came and then just, you know, this regular size Israelite guy just, oh, okay, rawr, you know, and ripped them apart. Because then they can't say it's because you're buff and you're strong and look at how great you are. It's like there's something different about you. You must have the Holy Spirit in you. And again, why wouldn't he tell his parents? Because he was in the vineyard where he wasn't supposed to. He can't run and say, Mom, Dad, I tore apart a line with my bare hands. It was great. I snatched it. I flipped it over. I ripped them in part. It's just like this. You can't tell everyone that you hit a hole in one in golf if you called it in sick from work. You can't do that. You can't do that. You'll get in trouble. Or you can't tell your wife the big, huge fish you caught because you were supposed to help a friend move. Like you, you see the point? You can't tell this great feat of how great it was if you weren't supposed to be there in the first place. So you see, so here's that first compromise. Well, the first compromise is marry, or wanting the desire to marry a Palestinian, or a Palestinian, forgive me, a Philistine woman. And now he's now towing the line just in the vineyard. Because, you know, going back to that legalism, well, why were you there? Well, I didn't touch it. It doesn't say I can't be in the vineyard, like all of these excuses. It doesn't say I can't sniff it. It doesn't say any of that. It just says, you, my vow says I can't touch it. I didn't touch it. So going on, verse 7. When Samson arrived in Timnah, he talked with the woman and it pleased her. Uh, so after he tore it, he snatched it. He gave it with the bare hands. He, he fed the, the honey to his parents. Excuse me. Verse 7, when Samson arrived in Timnah, he talked with the woman and, and was very pleased with her. Later, when he returned to Timnah for the wedding, he turned off the path to look at the carcass of the lion. And he found that a swarm of bees had made some honey in the carcass. Well, if you're thinking, why would you go look at a dead body? It's a guy thing. I... I, it's cool, look at what I did. Maybe I'll take pictures this time. Like, I want to see what I've done. I want to celebrate that. So then, uh, verse 9, it says, He scooped some of the honey into the hands, and he ate it along the way. He also gave some to his father and mother, and they ate it. But he didn't tell them he had taken the honey from the carcass of the lion. Why? What are you doing touching a dead body? That's part of Nazarite vow number two. Well, don't be legalistic, Dallas. I mean, maybe he used a stick... And he didn't even touch the lion. How do you know? Maybe whenever he scooped in, he was very careful and didn't touch the honey. He used the stick. I don't know why that's how you do it, but that's how I would do it. You, you see how you can make compromises and compromises and compromises? And this is what he's doing. Samson's whole life is full of compromises, skating on the line. Don't be legalistic about it. I know the rules. It's not the letter of the law. It's the spirit of the law. I mean, he could have, I used a stick, all these excuses. You know, I, I just think back to when I was a kid. My mom said, did you clean your room? Well, technically, yes, I did. 
What do you mean technically, yes, I did? Well, you know, I cleaned my room. Anytime you have to use air quotes, you're lying, okay? I technically cleaned my room. So then the question that I heard over and over again growing up is, and to whose standard or who, by what standard did you clean your room? By my own very much. Thank you very much. I just kicked everything under my bed. You know, you could just qualify your sins so easily. And that's what Samson has done. Now, this is what happened in verse 10. And his father was making final arrangements for the marriage. Samson threw a party at Timnah. Throwing that party, quite literally, in the Hebrew means he threw a drinking bash. Okay, you didn't go in the vineyard, but now you're drinking. Well, no, I'm not drinking. I'm just throwing a party and everybody else is drinking. And it was the custom of the, the elite young men. In verse 11, when the bride's parents saw him, they selected 30 young men from town to be his companions. Wait a minute. Why is there 30 young men watching Samson? I'm assuming for a couple of reasons, and this is totally speculation, and, and it's not just my own. Just reading this. They probably found out what happened about with the lion. He probably, he knew he couldn't tell his parents, but he told everybody else. Which means his parents probably eventually found out too. But seeing how strong he is, and they're still unsure what's going on here. We're going to give you 30 young men from town as companions. The second thing is, is nowhere in here you will read anything about Samson having friends at all. You won't see him having any Israelite friends. You won't, you'll start to see more and more of his parents fading out of his life. That is just a telltale sign that you are backslidden. You are fading away. If you're pulling away from your friends so much, it's usually a sign that you're hiding. So they select 30 uh, companions. Verse 12, says, Samson said to them, let me tell you a riddle. If you solve my riddle during these seven days of celebration, I will give you 30 fine linen robes and 30 sets of festive clothing. But if you can't solve it, then you must give me 30 line linen robes and 30 sets of festive clothing. Essentially, he's saying, here's a riddle because it's a seven-day celebration drunken feast. I'm going to tell you a riddle that I just made up, and I'm the only one who knows the answer, so it's not fair. And this is the bet. If I win, I get 30 brand new suits and 30 cozy robes. If not, the reverse. So he's so arrogant and he's cheating and he's so self-centered that he comes up with this riddle. And they all agreed because they're all drunk by this point. And he says, let's hear your riddle. So he said, out of the one who eats came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Three days later, they were still trying to figure it out. You see that this, this disastrous moment of compromise is just building up and building up. Again, J.R. Packer has been my friend this week, and he mentioned how no one leader, no one person does a great fall all of a sudden. He goes on and says, it's never simply the mighty has fallen this great feat. It's one small slip or compromise at a time. And I was considering that for a moment, and you, you can judge me on my thinking here, but I was thinking about how this 
one thing leads to another and it's not all of a sudden you're at this great height and you fall. It's just one dumb choice after another. And I was thinking about how when you use ladders on the top step, it says do not step or sit. <clears throat> Has anyone ever done that? Thank you, everybody who's honest. Yeah. Because you look at it as a suggestion, right? It's more of a, you know, we're putting this on here so when you fall because you're dumb, you won't blame us. I mean, truly, right? But the more I was thinking about it, I was thinking about, you know, when you fall from a ladder, you don't just all of a sudden happen to be on a ladder and you fall. You, you climb up the ladder, and then you see that, and it says, don't go here. Don't stand here. Don't sit here. Don't think about it. And you're like, oh, okay, I could do that. That's for the dummies, <laughs> right? And then all of a sudden, you can't reach, so you think it's a great idea to put it on a table. So you put your ladder on the table because, you know, you're just not quite tall enough. You're only 5'9", you know. Then the schoolins come up, and they're all like 8 feet tall, but whatever. <laughs> <clears throat> they would never do this. And then you're still not quite tall enough. So you use a box on the table, and then you go on the ladder, and then you're like, I can reach it. I can get it. And then, right? My brother should have held it stronger. It's all his fault is all I'm saying. But, you know, you just make compromises. And one little compromise leads to another one, leads to another one. And the next thing you know, you're somewhere where you never intended to be in the first place. And then your feet are knocked out under you. And the problem is, is when you get to that point and you're about to fall or you're falling, you end up like Samson and you just go in a rage and blame everything else and you don't admit it. You blame everything else and you're just so focused on yourself that even when the friends and family members say, hey, this life of destruction, this where you're heading is not in a good place, you think, I can stand on the top rung, thank you very much. And then you fall. So let's see how Samson falls for the first time. We didn't read this, but going through, picks up in verse 15, Judges 14, 15. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to explain the riddle for us, or we will burn down your father's house with you in it. Okay. <laughs> now, you, now you think, oh, that's extreme. That was the Philistines' way of handling things. Not just specific threats, but just burning everything. We'll just, burn, we'll just wipe it out. So, and then their comment is, and then, did you invite us to this party just to make us poor? Now we're going to have to pay him 30 suits. So, Samson's wife came to him in tears. Side note, this is not Delilah. That's next week's stuff. <laughs> Samson's wife come to him in tears and said, you don't love me. You hate me. Well, that's gaslighting. I mean, have you uh, given, you've, you, sorry, you have given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't even given the answer to my father and mother. He replied, why should I tell you? Now, just quickly, why that is a big statement. And we're like, well, why would you tell your father and mother? You remember in, in, at this time, and, and still in many countries, the, the Eastern way of life is, it, for us, it, it should be God, our spouses, children, family, all that. In, East, in the Eastern culture, it's God, father, mother, children, spouse. So he's saying, I haven't even told my top people 
Why am I going to tell you, middle management person? Is essentially what he's saying to her. Why should I tell you? So she cried whenever she was with him and kept it up for the rest of the celebration. At last, on the seventh day, he told her the answer because she was tormenting him with her nagging. No comment. It's probably wise. Then she explained, then he, then she explained the riddle to the young men. So you see that? The party's for seven days. This is the fourth day. So for three straight days, every time she saw him, she was crying, tell me, tell me, tell me. You're a loser, whatever. And then finally he gave in. So verse 18, so before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town came to Samson with their answer. What is sweet, sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And Samson's reply, if you hadn't plowed my heifer, you wouldn't have solved my riddle. Yes, he's talking to his wife that way. No comment again. But do you see that? He, he's so upset. He's so angry because he lost a bet at a place he shouldn't have been in a wedding he shouldn't have had. Like over and over and over again, he's just climbing up this rung to the top rung of the ladder and putting it on the box and putting it on the table. He's just choosing wrong. And now he's mad at them because they figured out a riddle that he made up. Then he blames his wife. He insults her and says, if you hadn't plowed my heifer, if you hadn't messed with her, if you hadn't dragged her out. Verse 19, and then here's the Lord again. Then the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to the town of Ashkin, killed 30 men, took their belongings, gave the clothing to the men who had solved the riddle. But Samson was furious about what had happened, and he went back home to live with his father and mother. So his wife was given in marriage to the man who had been Samson's best man at the wedding. Whoa. So he's so angry, he's so upset that the spirit of the Lord comes on him powerfully. Remember, the Lord's whole focus is to save Israelites. And he's willing and can and is able to do it even in the oddest circumstances. So now he's super strong. He goes down to Ashkin, which is like 23-ish miles away, kills 30 Philistines, takes their clothes and says, here, here's your new robes and your suits. And the reason why he would do that is because by the time he got back, word would have not got to the group of people where the clothes came from. He's so angry. He's so upset. Then he doesn't stay with his wife. He goes home to his father and mother. I just imagine, she's so dumb. Why'd you let me marry her? And the next thing you know, so his wife was given in marriage to his best man. Remember, his father and mother paid whatever that dowry was, whatever that upfront cost was for her. And he travels do you see Samson? I mean, we're talking about faithfulness here. I haven't seen it yet. So just a couple of takeaways that, that was good for me to hear as I was considering this and I was reading. Do not ever assume that just because God is using you in a mighty way that you are right with him. Do not ever assume that just because God uses you in a mighty way that you are right with him. God can powerfully work through people who are not obedient. 
Because the trap is, God is using me. I must be good. I must be in good standing with him. Look at how great the church is. Look at how great my family is. Look at how great my business is. God is really blessing me. I'm really being faithful. But you know what I've noticed is God is so gracious and merciful that sometimes, many times, God lets us struggle so that way he, he's actually being so merciful to protect us from our pride. The other part, for me at least, was it's important for us to separate the faithful deed that someone we look up to and see that the Lord is at work. Sometimes we have to separate that faithful deed from someone and that the Lord can use unfaithful lives for his glory. And separating the two can be hard. What the faithful deed of someone is versus what their life looks like. But we need to separate it. Or whenever we see a pastor or someone that we really respect fall, it will crush us because we were dependent on them and not God's faithfulness. If not, then we can be putting the unfaithfulness unto God and blaming him in some ways. And just to close, um, J.R. Packer again, who, as he was closing up, ultimately, this is what he put, ultimately... This is what the author of Judges is doing. He's pointing us to Christ and not to fallible men. Christ is the ultimate deliverer, not Gideon, not Barak, not Jephthah, not Samson. God used fallible men to deliver them from the bondage, from the political oppressors of the Moabites, the Midianites, the Ammonites, and the Philistines. But if we will take a perfect deliverer, but it will take a perfect deliverer to rescue men and women from their bondage of sin. If Judges teaches us not to look at mere men for salvation, it also instructs us for us to look for the one who is our perfect deliverer. The God-man Jesus Christ who is the coming Messiah. And so just as Samson's birth is announced to a childless couple, the Messiah's birth is announced to the son of a childless couple. The parents of John the Baptist and on and on and on. And just as Samson's birth and his role of delivering is announced by the angel of the Lord, so the announcement of the birth of the Messiah comes by the angel. For the first sense, Samson seems to be the savior, but actually what Samuel, the author of Judges, is pointing to someone who is greater, our Messiah. So as we consider that, I, what really stuck to me, one of the things is what I had said towards the end is, do not ever assume that just because God uses you in a mighty way that you are right with him. Get right with him. And it's as simple as saying, Lord, here I am. I have failed. I have sinned. Take me as I am, but don't leave me here and save me. He's faithful to do so. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time that we've had to worship you and through your word and when we look at the life of Samson, sometimes we can look at someone and think, man, I'm not as bad as him. Or sometimes we can look at him and think, I'm as bad as him or worse. And Lord, ultimately, really, in the reality is that you are what is good in us through your son. Thank you for the reminder through your word that small compromises leads to bigger steps toward, away from you. Lord, 
Lord, using the illustration of the ladder, will you just help us throw away the ladder and not even consider it, Lord? Let us just not see how close we can get before we sin. Let us just turn to you and embrace you, Lord. And Lord, yet in our sinfulness, you use us despite us, Lord, because you're faithful. Lord, I do pray for anyone in here who's in that place where they've been running from you, that they've been scared of you or scared of their sin. I pray that uh, as you call them to be near to you because you're right there closer than the breath or an eyelash, Lord, you're there. Call them to you, Lord. Pray for anyone who's in that place where they've come to you and now it's thinking, now what, Lord? Lord, will you speak to them and Lord, our desire, as we have sung, to be holy as you are holy. We know we're not going to be perfect, but help us be clear and honest about that, Lord. I do pray, Lord, for anyone in here who this is a foreign concept or a concept that haven't heard as until they came here today, Lord, that we are sinful, but you made a way through your son. And Lord, I pray for everybody, no matter what and where they are on their journey, that they walk hand in hand with you. Help us realize that you do all of the heavy lifting and the caring. Help us be obedient and step with you. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.